Hey, Nicole. Hi, John. Ready? Let's do it. All right. I'm Nicole Mears. I'm John Davis. And this is our podcast, Shape the Conversation. We're lucky enough to work with the great team here at Shape.io, headquartered in Bend, Oregon. So just a little bit about us. We left our agency jobs as marketers to build software for digital advertising teams. And in this podcast, we'll be talking about working in marketing and growing Shape.io. So why should you listen to us? Yeah, why should you listen to us? That's always a good question probably to start every podcast. This week's a little different than most because we're talking to Michael Lalonde, CEO of Deschutes Brewery. We mix in some interviews going along with the podcast. We had one a few weeks ago with Michael Mack. Other weeks, we'll be talking about our experience working at Shape. We've kind of seen it from a few different sides as a software company, going from bootstrap to raising funding in 2015 and growing the team and reaching profitability. So yeah, we've been lucky enough for that to put us in a position to talk to some really interesting people here around town in Bend, Oregon. And this week's no exception. Michael was a really fun guy to talk to. Conversation went so long that we broke it into a two-parter, our first two-parter, another milestone for the podcast. And I took over on this one. You took the week off, but you gave it a listen. What'd you think? I thought it was great. I'm really excited. The, The first one really kind of focuses on gosh, all sorts of business aspects and and Michael's history. And then the second one I have yet to listen to. I'm really excited. I might crack open a beer and and listen to it. Uh, It's about marketing kind of in the the brewery world, the brewery sphere. And for those that might be a little less familiar, Deschutes Brewery, it's definitely an icon here in Oregon. Yeah. So started in 1988. It was one of the first breweries in Bend and kind of started this whole culture. And now we have, I don't even, I can't even count anymore how many breweries we have and brew tours and, and all of this stuff. And they're kind of iconic for their, their beer and their their merchandise too. Yeah, Michael found himself in an interesting position taking over as CEO from Gary Fish. You'll hear him refer to Gary a lot of times in the interview. That's him referring to Gary Fish, founder of Deschutes Brewery, longtime CEO. And they worked closely on the transition since Michael joined up with Deschutes a little over 10 years ago. And he had some really fun stories from some of those early days and kind of shepherding Deschutes through some crazy growth. Absolutely. And so you grew up in Bend, you know Deschutes and and what that kind of stands for is a, you know, when you think of Deschutes around town, what, what words come to mind with their brand and what have they been able to kind of build as a consumer in your mind? Top of mind is really like quality and community involvement. I think there's some really great kind of examples, like you said, that Michael gives about especially quality and about dumping beer when it just sounds like sacrilege to the rest of us. I mean, community involvement's big. You see them all the events. You see lots of big things. They just had their 30th anniversary, and they basically shut down a giant street in Bend. It's interesting, too. I, I think around town they're known for their employee stock ownership program and the way they really try to weave their employees into every decision that they make. And that's a common theme that comes up along the episode too. You'll hear Michael refer to their employees as co-owners, not employees, which I like and I think is really interesting. Innovation too. I think they're big on obviously creating and trying new beers. I mean, you have to be in this sphere, but they just recently started this like food cart situation right down from their, their big bottling facility, which is a really cool innovative idea. And they're changing it every three months. So this 
quarters theme is like boating. So you literally walk down and there's a bunch of small, I don't know, skiffs and yeah, yeah. like not yachts, but whatever you'd call them. And you can sit in one of those and have food from one of the food carts. And they're also selling to shoot beer. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. It was great to hear Michael kind of dig into that creative process where they get new ideas, how they make it through the gauntlet, how technology has changed the beer world and what beers actually hit the market. I thought was really interesting. So let's just maybe have Michael say it in his own words. How yeah, about that? Enough of us. Let's kick it to your interview with Michael Lalon, CEO of Deschutes Brewery. Michael, thanks so much for being here and taking the time. We're all lucky enough to get to live in Bend, Oregon. Everybody's kind of got their story about how they found their way here. So how do you find your way to Bend? Well, thanks for inviting me, John. It's a pretty interesting story, but very similar to a lot of people who moved to Bend. Uh, I was working in Scottsdale, Arizona, going to graduate school. I had three kids, and it was really kind of a rough time in in the life. And I came home one day from work, and my wife said, we're moving to Bend, Oregon. And I had never heard of Bend, Oregon at the time. So I asked her, you know, how did you come up with that? So she went on a website called findyourspot.com. And typed in all the stuff we like to do as a family. Uh, This is 2003? 2003, 2004, something like that. So, you know, instead of, you know, selling everything and moving up here, we decided to come up and visit a couple of times and have vacation up here. And I actually knew some people that lived close by. And so we met up here with them and had a great time and decided to, to move. So in August of 2004, we ended up going ahead and buying property and we decided to build a home. And I was going to commute down to Scottsdale because I c- couldn't find a job. And a couple of months later, my wife found a advertisement for a CFO at Deschutes Brewery and I applied for it and got an interview. Worst interview in the world, but for some reason, Gary still decided to hire me. So it just worked out really well. All right. Worst interview in the world. Let's start there. Talk to me. So like I said, I was in graduate school and I think I interviewed on a Tuesday and Friday before coming up here, I pulled an all-nighter to finish some assignments for work. Sunday, I did the same thing. So by Tuesday morning, I was a wreck. I remember waking (laughs) up and it was cold and windy, and this was in December, and, you know, I was like, God, I'm so exhausted. I tried to do push-ups to wake myself up. December and Bend can be negative 10 sometimes if it gets real It bad. was just <laughs> rainy and windy. I remember that. I'm like, oh, my God, where am I moving to? So, so I went to the interview, and about 10 minutes into it, the HR director said, Michael, can I get you a cup of coffee? Because I was just, you know, misspeaking all the time and giving the wrong years and just really, really tired. But I got through it, and they still make fun of me today. Really? Yeah. yeah. So were you a big beer guy? I imagine interviewing you know, for a job like that at Deschutes. How much did you know about the history, or was it just kind of CFO job, bend? Uh, I'm in. See, my background is pretty interesting because I've been CFO. I've ran a couple of companies, but I came from a really strange background. I started off at Arthur Anderson, okay. which is a big accounting firm yep. that is no longer. And was that of, back in Atlanta, um, back east? That was in Seattle and oh, then back. Phoenix. And one of my clients was a cement company, which was a mining operation and a manufacturing operation. And I knew a little bit about them, but I decided to take the job. But they were owned by an Indian tribe. And so I, I worked for the cement company for a couple of years. And then I found out that the president of the company was embezzling money. 
So I went and I researched what he was doing and, and a friend of mine who happened to be a medicine man for the Crow Indian tribe. I know this is really a bizarre story, but um, he came to my office and he said, the tribal council is going to come up here tomorrow and they're going to want to know what's happening. If you can find out what's happening and where he's taking the money, then you'll look a lot better. So I stayed up all night long and was able to find out where the money was going, how much it was. So when they came up, I was a nervous wreck. I just had my first son and but I had all the data, but I thought they were going to fire me for sure because I was a controller of the company. And I remember one of the board members came and sat by me and said, well, it's going to get too hot over here. I'm going to move. And I'm like, oh, God. I was literally <laughs> trembling. I was sure they were going to fire me. But the president of the tribe took me into my office and he said, so what do you know about this? And I had all these numbers and I gave it to him and I told him what I thought was happening. And he goes, we are so relieved because we knew nobody up here and I'm glad somebody's on top of it and, and is honest to tell us the truth. So from that point on, I had a great relationship with the tribe. I became VP of finance of the cement company, became co-president with two other guys. We ran the company for a while and then after a while, they asked me to be the CFO of the tribe. So I was CFO of the entire tribe, which is nine different businesses, the government, 4,000 employees, you know, we did casinos, we did cement, sand and gravel, golf courses. We had a yogurt company, property development, a lot of different companies. So I really was involved in the tribe. I know it's a long story, but during the interview, I was talking about one of my roles was to talk to the community about how to prepare themselves for the long term and be financially healthy. So I had to go around to all of the tribal members and talk about our long-term plan. And during that, one of the things that the tribal members want is to get payout from the casino. And they wanted all the money directly to them. And instead, the proposal was to let's invest in schools, let's educate all the youth, let's build the infrastructure, let's build the healthcare system. And some of the money will still go to you, but you're not going to be millionaires from it. It's going to be reasonable. It's going to be a small amount. So during that process, a lot of the elders were very supportive, but there was a group of people that weren't, and they started calling me the white devil, Diablo Blanco. So I told the story to Gary during the interview, and at that time, Deschutes was going through kind of an evolution where it was becoming more of a business, the talk was about profitability, and a lot of people were conflicted about that whole process. And he thought if I could live through an Indian tribal harassment like I did, then I could deal with the, the brewery job. Yeah. So that's why he decided to hire me, believe it or not, even though the rest of the interview was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that it does kind of go with the theme we've heard from some of the other people we've talked to and kind of what we think of is that communication, yeah, looking at the problem that sits right in front of you and kind of looking at that, that unique factors on either side of that and trying to figure out how to get to the other side and everybody aligned in a vision and and going forward. I think that's what translates no matter where you're at. Mm -hmm. So 2003, you get the job. Even after this terrible interview, you settle in to start helping with this transition. Let's drill in a little bit on that time. It was important transition like you talk about, one where you're you know, Deschutes was now, let's see if I got my math right, about 
15 years into its founding, 20 years into its founding, and starting to make a big transition. Yeah, I started actually in early 2005, and the you know the craft beer world was doing pretty well, but it was was not incredible growth at that time. We were growing, you know, in the single digit growth rate doing fairly well. And when you guys measure growth rate, just because I'm curious, what do you look at to measure just top line revenue? Is it beer sales? Is it barrel sales? What What are the metrics that are you guys look at when you're thinking growth? It's basically shipments out of the brewery to our distributors. Got it. It's the biggest number that we pay attention to. Cool. So when we talk about our percentage growth, we're talking about year over year total barrel shipment growth. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So at that time, like I said, there was kind of a transition with the culture internally, and we needed to make money. The Deschutes is, you know, a very well. The beer business is a capital intensive business, mm-hmm. so you need to invest yeah. to grow all the time. As a so. software guy, the beer business terrifies me. It Pretty is much terrifying. every aspect of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to put in a new bottle line is not cheap. A new racking line. So at that point, you know, we were growing. We had built the brewery over on Simpson, and we were trying to be conservative in our approach and you know you work with sales and you you think about a number you can hit and you try to design your financials around hitting that number so you can spend a certain amount and you know if you spend more than that and you don't hit your sales number then you can get into trouble so we are just really trying to be conservative financially and and do a great job so that's how i i kind of started but, you know we weren't doing really well you know we we had to kind of focus on you know our beers and our sales strategy and you know as we work through distributors all across the country we have to get their focus on our beer and our brands and that's really important so getting that dialed in at that time was something that we were really focused on and then we also decided even though we weren't hitting our sales projection numbers to go ahead and build a pub up in Mm. portland so we were looking around for land, and we decided to go ahead and invest it, and we didn't hit our numbers, and that was back in 2007. So I remember calling up the banker and saying, hey, you know, our line of credit is not what we need it to be. We're, we've decided to break ground on this Portland pub, and we're still going to do it, and I need you to free up a little cash for us. And you were still committed to pushing that new pub because even though sales weren't there, you felt – the reason sales weren't there was because the brand wasn't out there enough in front of people's mind, and you wanted the Portland Pub to be uh, another pillar of your brand in, I thought in, it could, in a metro? Yes, I thought it could help a lot in Portland. Something about us is when people get to know who we are, what we do, kind of what our values are mm-hmm. as a company, and, and the beer that we have and be able to taste it, they really are attracted to Deschutes Brewery yeah. and, and have a lot of confidence in, in what we do and all the brands that right. we release. But I imagine so. a uh, pitch that centers around branding is a tough one to sell to the bank. Like you're saying, you call them up, you've got to free up some credit, but they believed in what you guys had done. You had been around 20 plus years at this point, so they were able to approve line of credit and you broke ground on Portland Yes, they, they did. They believed in us. They knew that, you know, we usually hit our projected number, our EBITDA, our cash flow number. They had been with Gary since day one, and they're still our banker today. So at times, you know, we've exceeded our forecast sometimes we missed a little bit but generally we're right on track and they have a lot of faith in us 
They're great partners. Got it. So this is 07. That was 07. Break ground on the new pub. What started turning those sales number rounds? I mean, I, I tried not to over-prepare for this so we could flow a little bit, but I imagine that time is when you start to see really you're hitting those sales numbers, 08, 09, 2010, even as the rest of the economy starts to, to struggle a little bit. My memory of moving to Bend in 2009 was Deschutes was really – you know, the beacon of, of the town and, and growing rapidly through those years. We decided to create some new brands. We concentrated on our reserve series, which is the Abyss and some Black Butte anniversary beers started coming out about that time. Inversion is something that we launched right around then as well. And the thought being there show that new beer lines, new thinking or new styles that we're innovating and that's part of our brand or what talk to me what's the the strategy with focusing on reserve is it because you're not doing tons of shipments on reserves I, I imagine out through distributors and and that's one of your key metrics but you felt like we start to develop a name for ourselves for these high-end kind of premium brands that that will trickle down into all of our lines and series that we ship out. Kind of a halo effect yeah. from our reserve series brands, you know, and they're very profitable. Even though we don't ship a lot of it, it's a very a profitable category to be in. Interesting. But we just thought people were interested in a lot of different, new, interesting beers. And mm-hmm. they're beers that we loved and really enjoyed. And we like to kind of experiment with not only styles, but w- even within a style, how can we be distinct and different than the rest of the beer on the shelf? Yeah. Meanwhile, I'd say probably on a macro scale, craft brewing nationwide in the U.S., definitely that was another trend you guys were probably riding the back of, too, through those years. How much you say they were they were lines you enjoyed, you guys approved of essentially when you were dog fooding it and tasting it yourselves how much did you pay attention to the when you were planning growth or, or looking at how to expand the, the macro trends that showed people wanted to drink more microbrewery type beers were interested in these more complex lines of, of beers like you mentioned how much did you think about what was happening on a macro sense versus all right, we just need to focus on making beer we like and working with distributors that believe in our brand and everything else will take care of it itself. Was, it was the latter. We've always focused on what we can do better. And as long as we are doing what we do and we improve all the time, then we'll be successful. So that was always the focus. And, and at that time, if you remember, I mean, there, there weren't a lot of craft breweries. There were yeah. some. And we were actually tasting beers from all over the country, but a lot from Europe. A lot from Belgium, Germany. So we would sit around every Friday afternoon with our brewmaster, Larry Sidor at the time, and Gary and myself, and just taste a lot of different beers and think, you know, that's interesting. How can we explore with that? And and then we have another meeting every Tuesday where we sit around and we exper- we taste all our experimental beers, what we like about them, what we don't like where we would like the brew to kind of go, what direction, whether it's a different type of hops or a different type of malt or any other different ingredients now because there's so many that brewers use and just, you know, experiment with it and talk about it and and really design something that everybody would like. And the benefit of having two pubs and two tasting rooms right now is every day we have a sensory panel that comes in the door and gives us feedback on all those different brands. So we get a lot of feedback. When you say sensory panel, because I've been to the tour at Deschutes, that's like 
maybe one of the better jobs out there. There are people too that are like trained, right? Beer connoisseur essentially that have a taste and, and you're constantly running batches and QAing through. I think when you say you focus on what you guys do, you can see that when you go visit your brewery facility here, or you see a lot of the stories that have come out over the years. It's probably now six, seven, eight years ago, and I can't remember the exact line, but I remember still in town people talk about when you guys brewed a batch of maybe Black Butte Reserve or Abyss that wasn't up to your guys' standards and you wiped the whole batch as opposed to, to releasing it. Something that probably the market would not have noticed if you guys have released it. But are there other examples you can think about where you have taken that micro or kind of like internal focus and, and you've really lived by it, you know, and you made the hard, tough decisions to, to go down those roads? Uh, yeah. I mean, just last week uh, we released a beer and I think it was, I think it was Fruit Fight. And we only do that in kegs, and we shipped a bunch of kegs out to our distributors. And kegs are always kept cold. But we found that there was a yeast that we didn't want in the beer that was, was in that beer and out in our distribution network. And it won't cause any problems if it's kept cold. But instead of taking the risk that somebody might store it warm or that it would get warm at a bar, we decided to recall all that beer. It wasn't a ton, but we just felt like it's more important to live by our quality standards, bring all that beer, and not have to really worry about it and have a fan taste that beer and have a bad experience. So we do it all the time. The one that you talked about yeah. is where we put chocolate and yeah. Blackview Porter yeah, anniversary yeah, yeah. beer. And one day our, our quality manager came to me and Gary, and there was a basically a layer of cocoa butter at the top of the bottle. Beer tasted great. No problem with it at all. Actually, it still tastes good because we have some of it, but it just looked bad, and we knew the right thing to do was to dump a lot of that beer. So I think we dumped $250,000 worth of that product. Yeah. But it, it made sense for us to do that because that's just who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so did, was that were there any constant themes that came up at those creative meetings? I think there should like definitely be some writing or articles done on those Friday meetings when you guys are sitting around with the brewmasters and talking about beers you like and shipping in beers to taste. Did they have a certain format that those meetings would live by? Brewing beer is definitely a part art, part science. I think software definitely in a lot of ways is part art, part science. And how did you kind of rein in the creative thinking so it wasn't just oh i like this beer i like that beer did you have certain tools you'd follow up with was there a document you kept of running beers you liked or was it somebody's job to take the notes and make sense of all the 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 conversations that would happen it, it was actually totally free form you know if we were out in the market and we saw a beer that looked interesting we would buy it and bring it back or gary would buy beers from like the belgian store online or if we were in Europe we would buy different beers and bring them back and then just Friday afternoon go to the fridge and check it out and see what's see what's there and see what we felt like drinking. I think a lot of the sour program came out of that. It's not like we were taking notes and had a specific plan on addressing it, but we were really interested in that. So a beer like Dissident came from those types of sessions and now we have a draft sour series that's really interesting as well. So we just learned from that. Now we're much better at documenting, yeah, priority list. You know, we have a definite focus about our beer calendar for the next few years. And Veronica Vega has really dialed that in. Yeah. What kind of tools is she using or softwares or uh, do you have 
routine meetings or how are you when you come out of that creative space into now all right we got to get this done there's some real things and product that need to move what kind of software how do you keep communication flowing amongst the different teams at Deschutes? Well, a lot of it is still spreadsheets, um, but we do have our sales statistics from what we ship out as well as both of our pubs. So we know what's the best selling beer and we monitor that closely because a lot of those are experimental beers we want to release to the market. So we track it that way. We, every other week we have a strategic beer meeting. And like I said, every, every Tuesday we have an experimental beer meeting where we're really starting at the infancy of an idea and developing it. And we have people from all the different departments in the company and, and involved in it. We have somebody from marketing. We have somebody from finance. We have somebody from project management. All those people have their own part. They can see where the idea is going to make sure that you know, not only the beer's great, but we have the right bottle, we have the right cap, we have the right packaging, we have the right name, we have the right design. I mean, can you imagine naming a beer now with 7,000 different breweries out there, all <laughs> with, you know, 12 different beers? You have to make up names pretty much. So all of that is a very rigorous process. How does a beer make it through that process? How does it go from those? Do you guys still have Friday meetings, essentially? Is there just a different crew in the room now tasting beers, or is it a, a different process? No, we don't have the Friday meetings anymore. We we just have the two meetings that I spoke about. And what we do is we develop a beer we like in a style that we think it's going to have some momentum in the marketplace, and then we put it on in our tap room. We just purchased a small pilot brewery, it's a 1.8 barrel brewery, but it's fully automated and it replicates our big brew house, which is the Hootman brew house, which is a 150 barrel brew house. So we used to be able to do about 20 test, really test brews a year at both of our pubs. I mean, in total, 20. Now we can do 20 a week if we want to through our pilot system. So now the system is so much more rapid. If we want to taste brewed IPA or a hazy IPA, we can have, you know, five of them in about three weeks ready to taste in yeah. all different types. That's got to be changing everything. It, it's rapid. It's extremely rapid and exciting. Definitely. So, I mean, are you then, do you think that that's going to change the way that we see beers get released? Do you think we'll see beers that generally people like more that get released with a version one, less experimentation kind of released in the market now that you can have all these behind the scene tests? Or how do you see that affecting what beers hit the market or will it just be faster? I think there will be new styles and new derivations of styles coming out all the time and very rapid by a lot of good breweries. I, I think that'll continue to happen. And, and the, the quality standards that we have, you know, are, are extremely good. You mentioned our sensory panel, yeah. and we have, tw we have 25 trained people that get trained every week and taste beer every day at 10 o'clock to make sure it's what we want. And the training they go through, I don't, I don't know if you've done it before, but it's amazing. You, you sit down, and there's 10 beers in front of you. And they're spiked with a flaw okay and it could be it could be any beer but they spike it with a flaw and you sit down and taste it and then you describe with the group about what kind of flavor attributes you're getting from that flaw 
And then you have to get up, leave the room, and they mix them up. And you have to come back and identify every one of the flaws in those 10 beers. And that's how you make it on the sensory panel. So if you don't do that, you're not on the sensory panel. And it is so hard. And it could be anybody in the company. I mean, we've had people in accounting that are great at it. Brewers can be great at it. Salespeople can be great at it. But it's hard. Now, if I'm in accounting and I'm able to make it to the sensory board, is that a bonus on my paycheck? Am I, what, I get the privilege to drink enough. beer at 10 o'clock in the morning, I guess, every day. It's, that sounds it's not a large quantity. <laughs> yeah. But it's fun to do, and they're totally into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think the quality standards that, that we have, and there's a lot of other great breweries out there, that have a new product on the shelf, people will taste it and trust that the quality will be there. And I I think that will change the dynamic quite a bit right now. So those Friday creative meetings when you guys were drinking beers, do you feel like when you moved away from that or you started thinking about different ways or more formulaic with the new systems, do you feel like that's now kind of kicked off a new transition into shoots? Do you feel like right now you're in a evolutionary phase do you feel like you're in a operational mode or do you feel like you're always trying to set a mentality of growth or or innovation and you want to always feel like you're in one of these big transition periods even though looking back maybe 20 years later you realize you know here were some of the key times when we really did make changes I, i think the biggest change to be honest with you is the people that we've brought into the shoots we have very qualified brewers that are very experimental. They go out and taste a ton of different beers. Their palate is a hell of a lot better than mine mm-hmm. and, and Gary's as well. So, you know, they can taste a beer and they can know what it'll take to actually produce it extremely well. So that talent is incredible. And we have now we have, you know, 4,000 barrels in an offsite warehouse that are all kinds of experiments. We have three people just working entirely on that space and doing you know, interesting stuff, different yeasts, different ingredients. We have that pilot brewery. We have two really talented brewers, one in Bend at our pub and one up in Portland. And, and they're just incredible what they do. They, they can dial it in quickly. They know what the trends are. They know what the fans are saying they want in both of the pubs. So just, just really relying on great experts in our company, great brewers, has really changed the dynamic quite a bit. It's just not three people sitting in an office drinking beer on a Friday. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. And I think that as CEO, how much of your day or of your job do you view as that, as cultivating new talent coming into shoots? Because one of the other things to shoots I think is known for too is talent starting their own breweries and, you know, Larry Sador example there of, of going on and kind of like the coaching tree that comes out of Deschutes brewery is, is well known as also how much of your effort or time do you view as, you know, people focused and every CEO is different. And if it's not a biggest focus, whose focus is, and is that important part? Are you constantly recruiting? The beauty of Deschutes and really Gary, our founder, was that he wanted to treat everybody really well when he started the business. So provided health care to F&B employees when that was pretty much unheard of 
or especially in Bend. That, yeah. that just wasn't done. But he's taken a lot of pride into being involved in the community and treating employees really well. When I joined, I said there was some kind of conflict going on in the company. And the conflict was we're working our butt off and Gary's taking a suitcase full of money home every day. And they didn't realize that was not the case. So one of the things I did is I started showing financials to everybody in the company. And there was a sense of ownership already, but that really brought it home where people knew exactly where every dollar was going, how we Gary was reinvesting every year. His entire wealth was tied up in the shoots, but he wanted it to grow and continually be, you know, a great company and, and transparent and really contributing to the community, improving the community a lot. So that just really opened everybody's eyes. They felt more like owners. We did the employee stock ownership program a couple years later, and then we became even more transparent, almost to a flaw, where we, we have a strategic planning process. And we're in the middle of it right now, so it's, it's on my mind. <laughs> and what we do is we do a survey every year of every co-owner in the company and we ask about uh, you know is your manager trust how big is that pool right now it's uh 571 wow and that those are made up of employees former employees no those are those total employees right now wow 571 okay. wow. so we do a survey every year and we ask those questions you know are we managing ourselves financially correctly do you understand the strategic goals do you understand your department goals? Do you trust your manager? Do you trust senior management? All these questions. And we've been doing it so so long now that we can see trends with all of those questions, whether we're getting better or getting worse. And, and then we follow up, and this is hard to do, but we have a third-party consultant we bring in, and we do focus groups with every co-owner as well. We get in groups of 8 to 12 co-owners who are on the same level of the organization so we don't want their manager there in the meeting so that they can speak freely and when you ask people what they think they will tell you and it's a it's a chance for some people to you know bitch and complain a lot of it is very very constructive on how we can get better this year the report was 175 pages long wow and we just reviewed the results yesterday but you know it's hard to hear what you're doing wrong, but you can't fix it unless you know. So we really spent a lot of time all day yesterday, well, at least half the day yesterday, understanding the feedback from those focus groups and those surveys. And then we design a plan on how to address it. Yeah. Uh, There's a bunch of things I want to dig in there. And I think that's a really fascinating period of Deschutes. And I think probably people that looking back now, the employee ownership program and everything is probably what springboarded you into this phase of the company and has you know spurred you guys over the last 10 years or so but a lot you know i've been employee that has had you know nicknames for executive teams or executive meetings that took place we knew it was the tuesday at nine o'clock meeting at g5 you know that's when all the big wigs were there deciding what we'd really work on whatever but you're also working day to day, you're on the brewery floor, you're walking around everybody else there, and you know you're working really hard to make it better. And how how's that emotionally on you from your perspective? I think a lot of us think about it, you know, that's kind of a, a way that, uh, you know, when I was maybe frustrated with times with the executive team, I use that kind of like as an outlet for me. But I, I think 
it does have an effect on those executives and those leaders and those positions when you were going through those times when you heard things like that what do you what do you tell yourself through that do you have any coping mechanisms do you have the mission of Deschutes in your head and you realize that you know setting this vision and going through these hard times are kind of what it's all about sometimes to get everybody aligned and and headed in the right spot where do you look at those times when everything's like communication isn't perfect and things are tough and people are upset I think everybody has to be open to the fact that they can continually get better. And, you know, I've been looking at these reports for over 10 years now. And when I first saw them, it would it would destroy me for a week or two. I just felt so horrible because everybody wasn't happy with everything we're going to do. But after a while, you realize you can't you can't make everybody happy. And there's a different opinion about every move that you make as a company. So you have to take it somewhat with a grain of salt, but look at themes and what the majority of the people are telling you and then really focus on that to make it better. But it, it is hard. It absolutely is hard. I was in Europe last last week, was it last last week, I think, for two weeks and I was reading, you know, this thing on my phone because I had to finish reading it before strategic planning and it was it was depressing. <laughs> it really was. I mean, there was positive in it too, but I usually focus on you know how I can get better more than yeah. anything else. I think that's human nature too. You could hear a hundred great things, and then that one thing you know, gets to you. I know from our perspective, we're very different business. We're kind of a B two B software platform, more of a niche. We, we hear some negative feedback, you know, like anybody that puts stuff out there here and there, but nothing on the scale of something like a consumer product like Deschutes. I imagine, you know, when you go to the grocery store, seeing your product, your co-owners seeing their product out there, you've, you've got to develop a pretty thick skin when you're delivering a consumer product and seeing that everybody's going to have an opinion on it. So do you have any like standard lines that you'll use when you when you hear feedback where maybe emotionally you want to react right in that moment but more any ways that you just take it in and and internalize it to like you said turn it into a how can i get better is there there a process you go through every time when you we talked to michael mack a couple weeks ago and he talked about what he describes like as head trash coming in when you get the bad thoughts coming in how do you deal with that head trash or the those those thoughts coming in you know when we get communications with somebody that had a beer that they didn't like or there was some flaw in the packaging or something like that we're actually really transparent with them we just say thank you for letting us know we write them a handwritten note mm-hmm. we have somebody that responds to every single one of them we buy the beer back from them and or you know or replace it or whatever and 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 we figure out how we're going to get better and learn from it so we track every instance of that happening and how we respond to it and then we measure any negative comments year over year to see if we're improving or not so I, I don't think you can internalize that kind of stuff all the time and and feel bad about it I think it's always an opportunity to improve now with the the co-owner thing I wanted to finish the story a little yeah. bit when when we do get all this focus group and, and and feedback and everything what we do is we design a plan around it and we have an annual strategic planning process. But when we're done with that, we rent out the Tower Theater, we rent out another theater up in Portland, and we present all of our feedback 
and plans to the entire company. We have an open Q&A. We film it and we stream it so that any of our salespeople who live around the yeah. country can watch it as well. And we have on, online Q&A where somebody can text a question, any question, and we respond to it. So we have a plan. We present it to everybody. We answer any questions. And then as a year goes by, two more times we do the same thing. So we hold ourselves accountable for what are we doing what we said we were going to do. You know, is there any other questions that have arisen from the co-owner base? And, and that transparency also helps a lot with our culture. And because we're, we do it that way, we're able to recruit and retain people a lot better than a lot of other companies. Because you feel like the clarity of which you're constantly communicating what everybody's doing and, and why they're doing that, still even just ba- answering those base questions still gives you a competitive advantage over most companies out there? I believe that when an individual works for a company and they can have an impact on that company, they are much happier. Because when I worked at Arthur Anderson, I didn't do anything meaningful. I, I, you know, I, I was an auditor. You know, and auditors would review the books and make sure they're right. I didn't think it really mattered. And I, and, and I couldn't have an influence on an organization that large. So what we focus on at Deschutes is day one when somebody comes in the company, we say, we want you to come to work and figure out how to do your job better and figure out how your department can get better and give us feedback on how we can be better as an overall company. So we've created things like a fund where anybody could submit an idea and if it costs less than $5,000, the CFO and I just sit down and approve it within two days. So they can have that impact all the time. There's a number of committees that they can join, sustainability committee. We have a beer leaders team, which is like cheerleaders, you know, that rally the troops. And we have a culture group that gets together and talks about our culture and how we can improve it and how we can bring, you know, places like Portland to, you know, together with the rest of the company so they feel like a part of it. So we have a number of opportunities for everybody to really be involved and have an impact. And I think that really matters to people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we listen to what they have to say. A lot of people don't ask and they don't hear what all their co-owners are saying. We do. It's hard. But we also respond to it. Mm-hmm. And you have, when somebody makes a comment, you have to respond to it. And, yeah. and that's hard to do with 500 and 71 people, but, <laughs> and, and we don't do it perfectly, but, but we try. All right, and that was part one of my interview with Michael Lalonde. Nicole, feedback for me. This is the second one now. You've had to listen to me give an interview. What do you think? I thought it was great. Good job. Okay, thanks. Fishing I, uh, for compliments there. Full transparency. Gary, fishing for compliments? Oh, no, 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 Pat. No, 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 no. no jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was, I mean, I absolutely enjoyed listening to Michael Lulon. I thought his takeaways, especially about addressing feedback of their, you know, their owners, their team, and and really making sure that they're absolutely addressing it, whether positive, negative, and, and coming up with an action plan and strategy is fantastic. I love that, you know, make sure you ask for feedback, but just don't ask for it. You know, really listen, hear it, and take action and have real mechanisms in place to take action so everybody knows there will be follow-up and this feedback just isn't going into a black hole of HR. Absolutely. 
I also think the idea of going out into the world and coming back with beers for a Friday afternoon meeting is pretty fantastic. Now, how you would apply that to software other than just bringing back beer to discuss software is one thing. But I mean, it's definitely something I'm going to think about is like that kind of idea and concept, but like applying it to SaaS. All right. I'm open to pitches. Definitely. <laughs> the beer actually having beer right there won't hurt either yeah so for part two next week what you can kind of look for is we go a little bit deeper on marketing specifically michael talks about a lot of the challenges of marketing in a world where closed loop attribution you know tying an ad to a beer sale in real life at a bar that somebody paid cash is nearly impossible how do you decide what to do what activities to take on i think a lot of our audience find really interesting there absolutely all right so until then make sure to subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts rate review those always help and that's what everybody says right when they close a podcast so it just feels right to close check the show notes check our blog blog blog.shapeio slash podcast we put up detailed show notes there our email addresses to reach out to us with any ideas so until then over and out from Bend, Oregon. Please cut the Gary fishing for compliments. I can't. I can't do it. No. <laughs>